0: The children can be dismissed at this time. Let me ask you, if you will, please to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. As we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark. Last week we looked at the confrontation between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees over what they valued more than the word of God, the traditions of men, what they thought made someone unclean. And Mark continues that very same theme with Jesus in an unclean land, encountering an unclean woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit, and yet he is not detoured by either one of those things. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Please follow along as I read. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help now as we approach the holy ground of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, that you would be our teacher, that you would prepare our hearts and soften us so that we would be ready to receive the nourishing food of your word. We pray as we come to a passage that is somewhat controversial, a passage that strikes us as offensive, and in fact a a passage that is a little bit offensive. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly. That you would remind us that we are no one to answer back to the one who has made us. And yet, Lord Jesus, By your spirit, help us to understand your true intention in your interaction with this precious woman. Lord, we ask that as we analyze your word, you would analyze our hearts with your word. That your word would do its work of surgery inside of us. You and you alone know everything that needs to be done in each one of our hearts. And so we ask that you would do it. Lord, if faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ needs to be granted, then we would beg you to grant it to those who need it, Lord. If strengthening faith needs to be granted to those who already have it, we would beg you to do that. If persistent faith needs to be granted, if encouraging faith needs to be granted, whatever needs to be granted, Lord, we would ask for it. And we would ask for it appealing not to our own merits, but on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We come to you not in our name, we come to you in his name. We come to you not because we are somehow worthy, we come to you through Christ because we are unworthy, and yet he is entirely worthy. And as the one who who cleanses all who repent of their sin and come to him by faith. We look to him, we trust him, we walk with him, we believe him because we need him. So help us, Lord, to have the kind of faith that Jesus loves. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In an article published in the Harvard Business Journal back in 2015, an author named Ben Parr notes what he calls seven ways to capture someone's attention. Those seven ways were derived from the book that he wrote called Captivology, the science of capturing people's attention. In other words, these aren't just random ways that he made up, but actually correspond with what we know increasingly about studies of the brain. The first way of those seven ways to capture people's attention is to activate their senses. In other words, appeal to what they can see, what they can smell, what they can hear, something that's tangible. The second way is to contextualize your argument. Or, in other words, put it in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can relate to, in something that they can grab hold of. The third way is to break expectations. Or, in other words, do something that they did not see coming so that it would shock them and get their attention. The fourth way is to create desire. Or, in other words, give them something that they want. No one wants to listen to something that they don't want to hear. And so if we're going to capture their attention, then we should create a desire. Let them know why it is that they need whatever it is you're talking about. The fifth is to establish credibility. Demonstrate that you are trustworthy, that you know what you're talking about, that you can be counted on. The sixth way is to leave them with a sense of mystery, or in other words, leave them wanting more. Tell them just enough to prompt questions in their head so, that they will pursue that information on their own. And then finally, the seventh way to capture someone's attention is to acknowledge their importance to you. In other words, don't speak down to them. Let them know that as the one presenting or uh, as the one who's trying to capture their attention, you value their attention because you value them as a human being. Seven ways to capture someone's attention, really helpful. But I think a better question than asking what would capture someone's attention is to ask, what would capture Jesus' attention? Now certainly Jesus was a man in every way that we are, yet fully God. He was, his attention would have been captured in the very same ways, yet as we look at our passage this morning before us, there is something specific about this Gentile Syrophoenician woman that captures the attention of Jesus in a way that no one else so far in the gospel of Mark, even his own disciples, has. Mark is going to contrast Jesus' own disciples with the response of this woman who would have been considered unclean by her ethnicity, living in an unclean land, and in those days, the very fact that she was a woman would have made her ignorable to any right-thinking citizen of Israel. And we don't know all those things to be completely false and completely wrong, but in all honesty, one of the ways that we know them to be false is because of the enduring influence that Christianity has had upon the world. It's Christianity that is responsible for teaching people about human dignity, that men and women are created equal in the image of God and they have equal value, that your ethnic background does not matter because God sees you as equally important before him. And so this woman puts on display for us the very thing that captures Jesus' attention Most. And yet, as we've already read, you can see that this is a somewhat controversial confrontation. This is a passage that leaves a lot of people scratching their heads, and it leaves some people scrambling to try to figure out why Jesus was so offensive to this woman. We'll get into those things later, but you can see immediately upon reading it, there's something going on here that makes you go, ooh dog? Really, Jesus? And yet, this whole thing, even his comment to this precious woman, was designed to highlight for his disciples then and for his disciples now that the thing that captures Jesus' attention most is faith. What he is looking for most is is not your ethnic background, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Is not your gender, whether you're a man or a woman. What he is looking for most, the thing that transcends everything else for God, is whether or not you believe in Jesus. After all, Paul tells us in the book of Romans multiple times that not all Israel is Israel but only those who are the children of faith. And so what captures Jesus' attention most? It's faith. And this woman puts on display for us the kind of faith that Jesus loves. You know from reading your Bible, from James, for instance, that there are various kinds of faith. There are there is genuine faith and there is faith that is not so genuine. Faith that even the demons have in the belief of God and they know enough to shudder, says James, and yet they don't have a saving faith. So what does that faith look like? What does the faith that Jesus loves actually look like? Well, here in this passage, we see six facets of that faith. Six facets of the kind of faith That Jesus loves and just as a diamond is one gem yet has many facets this passage displays for us one truth faith and yet it displays many facets of that faith so that as you turn it around each one of them sparkles and shines this is for the non-christian who might be here this morning And this is equally for the Christian who is here this morning. The non-Christian needs to understand that this is what it looks like to have salvation. This is what it looks like to know Jesus. And the Christian needs to understand that this continues to be what it looks like to follow Jesus. That faith is not a one-time coming to Jesus, a desperate moment in the past, But faith is a continual dependence upon Jesus, a desperation that lasts throughout all eternity. And so, Mark highlights for us this story, which features these six facets of the kind of faith that Jesus loves. First of all, the kind of faith that Jesus loves is a seeking faith, a seeking faith. In other words, she comes. She comes to Jesus. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. And from there, you know where the there is from last week. Jesus was in a house teaching his disciples in a land that was still in Israel territory. But after he was done teaching his disciples, continuing the theme of what it is that defiles a person, The Pharisees and the scribes thinking that what defiles you are the things you eat or the things you touch, or even the people that you brush up against. Mark includes this encounter with a woman in an unclean land, being from an unclean ethnicity, whose daughter has an unclean spirit to show that when you come to Jesus, no matter how unclean you think you are, no matter how unclean society says you are, Jesus is. Makes you clean. And don't you just love how Jesus shatters man's boundaries? I was reading an account of one of the, a man back in the 1600s who went to, I think it was Oxford, went to one of the Ivy League schools of his day, though they were really just the colleges of his day then. And then became a missionary and went to the now state of Virginia. And his heart was to reach slaves. And yet the response that many of the slaveholders said to him. Was that those black dogs were not worthy of salvation. Jesus smashes that racism. Jesus smashes that ethnocentrism. Jesus demolishes the idea that any one person is more important than another person. And this is what he does in this passage. So the woman comes. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he goes northwest of where he was once located, the city of Tyre, though he just says the region of Tyre, but if he were in the city of Tyre, it's now on the coast. It's possible here, though Mark doesn't tell us why he went away, it's possible here that Jesus is finally looking for the rest that he and his disciples had been seeking. Where better to go than a beach town? Where better to go than the coast? And so he goes to the region where the coast is, And you can see from the passage that Mark makes it crystal clear what his intentions were. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Mark doesn't exactly tell us why Jesus went there, but he does tell us what Jesus' intention were. He wanted to get away so that he could be hidden, so that no one would know, so that he could probably have just a few moments of breathing room so that he could eat and maybe even sleep and perhaps even teach his disciples. But as we've already seen back in chapter three, massive crowds, even from the region of Tyre and Sidon, already knew about Jesus. His popularity was so widespread that there was no hiding the fact that he was somewhere. Everywhere Jesus went, it was always known, Jesus is here, ring the bell, light the Christmas tree, Okay, maybe not that. So Jesus is there. He wants to be hidden, but he can't be hidden. Verse 25 says, immediately, Mark's favorite word. Just as soon as Jesus got into the house, immediately a woman found out about it. Mark loves to pull us into the story to keep you on the edge of your seat and to make you go, ooh, what's gonna happen next? Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So there's a woman who has a problem, but it's not just any problem. It's a problem with her little daughter. And Mark emphasizes, not daughter, but little daughter. The word that tends to mean small before she was of the age of 13 when she would have been considered a woman. Her little daughter has a problem. And she, like any good mom, is bound and determined to get a solution. But the problem here is not physical. The problem here is spiritual. What her daughter had was not an ailment, but was an unclean spirit. Something that Exorcists of the day would have tried to deal with. Even Jews had their own sort of incantations to cast out demons. But it didn't work most of the time. And yet this woman knows who Jesus is and she knows what Jesus has been doing and one of those things is that he has been casting out unclean spirits. And so she hears that he has come and she determines that she is going to do what. it takes to get her daughter some help moms you know what that's like dads you know what it's like to watch kids if you're smart enough yet you know what it's like to see your mom in action you know the stories you can even google it when you get home not right now but when you get home of mothers who in a moment of panic and in a moment of needing to rescue their children have lifted cars off of their own children. If you don't believe me, Google it. Because when a mom has a problem that involves a son or a daughter, a mom is going to get the solution to that problem. And so this mom comes seeking Jesus. That's the first facet of the kind of faith that Jesus loves. A faith that seeks him. A faith that comes to him. And the reality is, while this is certainly a coming to Jesus initially for salvation, this woman probably had never met Jesus before. The reality is, it is a coming to Jesus the first time for salvation but it is also a continual coming to Jesus to keep on seeking him. Hebrews eleven six six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Not those who have sought him, but you get it, right? Those who seek him, those who right here, right now, always and forever, keep on seeking God through Jesus Christ. Isn't this reflective of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? As he unfolds the character that must accompany you if you belong to the kingdom of God, he says in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. I don't know if you realize it, but the only way that you will ever be satisfied from God is if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew loves to use the word righteousness in a different way than Paul loves to use it. Certainly, it would be the way that Paul loves to use it, in a justifying way, in a saving way. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then typically to Paul, that is that you go to Jesus Christ in faith to be your righteousness for you. But Matthew loves to use it in a practical sense, that you do righteousness, that you attain righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, but then you live in that righteousness that you have attained through faith in Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus want to make it crystal clear from his disciples What does he want to make it crystal clear to us as we think about what it looks like to hold saving faith, to hold the kind of faith that Jesus loves? He wants to make it crystal clear that if if you possess a faith that Jesus loves, then that faith will result in seeking, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus, I want to do what you tell me to do. I want to live the way that you want me to live, God. The most important thing to me in this life is living for you. So as we think about the first facet of the faith that Jesus loves, a seeking faith, I want to ask you first of all, have you sought Jesus? Have you come to him? Have you realized your great need for him? And in doing so, then realize that he is the only one that can provide you with that great need. And not only is he the only one that can provide you with that great need, but he loves to provide you with that great solution. Have you come to Jesus? And then secondly, Christian, do you keep seeking Jesus every single day? Or does your Christianity sort of wane a little bit? Yeah. It's Christmas time, so I'll, I'll kick it up a notch. But then as soon as the new year hits, I'm not singing any more songs. Okay, maybe it's, maybe it's not quite like that. But in all seriousness, my friend, do you pursue Jesus? Did you start today thinking, I'm gonna pursue Jesus? Did you come here today thinking, this is the highlight of the Christian's week? the time when we gather together to worship God. I'm going to go and get it because I'm hungry and I'm thirsty for righteousness. You see, that's the type of tenacity, that's the type of seeking that is pleasing to Jesus. In fact, that's the only type that is pleasing to Jesus. Not the lukewarm faith of the Laodicean church. That's the type of faith that gets you spit out of the mouth of Jesus. But a faith that says, Jesus, I need you every moment of every day. And so the first facet of a faith that pleases Jesus is a seeking faith. And then secondly, it's a courageous faith. Not only does she she come to him, but she overcomes obstacles to come to him. Look at verse 26. The woman has three strikes against her according to the culture of her day. Verse 26 says, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The three strikes are, number one, she's a woman. Now you remember who Jesus has just done battle with in context here? The Pharisees and the scribes. Supposedly, historians say there were groups of Pharisees who when they saw a woman coming would cover their eyes so that they would not look at the woman. Stupid. I mean, just plain stupid. Because they thought that that woman was there to try to tempt them because they didn't understand that their heart was the problem. And so not to Jesus but to the culture a woman was not to approach a man in this way she didn't care the second strike against her that she was that she was a gentile or a greek that is that means that she was hellenized she was greek speaking she was influenced by the culture of her day and of, of course she was she wasn't jewish The language that she spoke was foreign to the language that Israel spoke and was therefore looked down on as unclean by especially the Pharisees and the scribes. Strike number two, she's a a dirty Greek. Strike number three was that she was Syrophoenician by birth, living in the land of Tyre. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said that the people from Tyre were the Jews' bitterest enemies. You could look throughout various prophecies in the Old Testament and see that Tyre was a serious problem to the Jews and God pronounced serious judgment against them. There was such hostility between these two groups that Israel absolutely hated anyone from Tyre. But she didn't care. She didn't care about the so-called cultural barriers that were in place. She had a problem. She knew Jesus was was the solution and so she mustered up the courage to go to him. A courageous faith is a facet of the faith that Jesus loves. And this is the very type of faith that must accompany our lives, isn't it? A courageous faith, a faith that says, it doesn't matter what anyone says or does, I follow Jesus. Isn't this the very type of faith right now, our brothers and sisters in places like Iran, North Korea, China, and many, many other places? Isn't this the type of faith that they are displaying? They know in that context, if you come to faith in Jesus, you're most likely going to die. They know that. And yet, what they see as more valuable than their own life is Jesus. And they are compelled with the courage that the Holy Spirit gives to his people to go to Jesus. They don't care about the boundaries that are in place, they don't care if they themselves will die. It doesn't take a whole lot of courage in this nation to be a Christian. Not yet, at least. It will. That's not our fault. The grace of God has saw fit that for whatever reason, he would use this nation for great purposes. But do you know the temptation that comes when courage is not so necessary? The temptation to compromise comes when courage is not so necessary. The temptation to think that everything that calls itself Christian is really Christian. The temptation to not be discerning. To not ask questions of someone who says they love Jesus, but has not stepped foot in a church for 35 years. Who says they love Jesus yet continues down the downward spiral of addiction that they just won't give up. You see, the type of faith that Jesus loves involves a courageous faith. It's the type of faith that we must put on display, the type of faith that runs into, in humility, but runs into hard conversations where you need to sometimes be confrontive, where you might have to say to someone, you know, I don't think Jesus wants you to do what you're doing. In fact, let me show you from the Bible. I actually know he doesn't want you to do what you're doing and yet you're doing it anyways and, and, and yet you're saying that you love Jesus but according to his word, love looks like obedience. So help me understand, what, what's the disconnect here for you? She overcomes the cultural boundaries and we have to overcome those very same boundaries. The type of faith that Jesus loves is a courageous faith. And then, th- number three, the third facet of the type of faith that Jesus loves is a persistent faith. A persistent faith. She dialogues with Jesus, but she has the audacity to answer back to Jesus. Check this out, verse 27. And he said to her, let the, little, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She says, Jesus, my little daughter has an unclean spirit. Please heal her. And then he says, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There are all kinds of theories about this interaction here. But one of, the, one of the best things about the Bible is that it leaves us with a good sense of mystery. Why did Jesus say this? Well, I think I have a pretty good idea but it still shocks you a bit, doesn't it? In, in the historical context, it would have been entirely expected for Jesus to tell her she was a dog and she should get away from him. It seems, based on Matthew's account, that that's basically what the disciples wanted Jesus to do. Jesus, tell her to get away, they said. And yet, pay attention To the parable that Jesus offers. He doesn't actually call her a dog. What he does is give another parable that conceals the order of God's plan of salvation. Who are the children in this parable that Jesus gives? Israel. And who are the dogs? Gentiles. Yet, the disciples have already displayed that they don't understand the parables when Jesus tells them. Look back to to chapter, uh, in chapter 7, look at verses 15 to 19. You remember this interaction? didn't get it. But look at verse 28. After Jesus gives her the parable, she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see what she's doing? She gives it right back. She uses, Martin Luther said, she uses Jesus' words against him. She grabs on to the idea of the dog and she says, if I'm a dog, then I'll be a dog, but I need to get my daughter healed. So whatever it takes, that's what I'll be. She persists. She doesn't give up. She doesn't listen to Jesus's response and say, well, I have no idea what that means. I guess it's not going to work. I'll just hang my head low and walk home. No, she has the wisdom and the discernment in the moment to be able to answer Jesus back. What he's referring to, as I have already said, is the plan of salvation that God has has issued for the world. Paul summarizes this in Romans 1, 16 and 17 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. You see, Jesus is not insulting the woman. He's giving her a parable to see if she hears with ears and understands with her mind. Isn't that the very thing that he has told us about in Mark chapter four, the parable of the soils? Jesus is looking for people who listen to him in a way that apparently so far his disciples don't. But this Unclean woman in an unclean land with a daughter who had an unclean spirit, she got it. She understood. You understand what Jesus means here. We have this happen every meal at our house, most especially with Grace. She loves to sample food and then throw it. We're not quite sure if she understands if she's throwing it, though. I think she probably does. She picks it up out of her bowl. She chews it up a little bit, and and depending on what it is, she swallows it, but often it ends up on the ground, and who's under the ground? Our two dogs. They position themselves right underneath the table. It's helpful for us because we don't have to clean it up. They're the best vacuum cleaners money could buy. And so as soon as it hits the floor, they get the crumbs, right? Well, we're not going to take Grace's meal and set it underneath the table and give it to the dogs and say, sorry, Grace, the dogs are going to go first today. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not calling her a dog. He's just saying it's God's intention to come first to Israel. The Messiah was Israel's Messiah, but it was also God's intention to include the Gentiles. It's to light a thing, the Father says to the Son, That you would save just Israel. I will make you a light to all the nations. That's what Jesus is reflecting here. In other words, he's saying, it's not yet time for the Gentiles. But she says, oh yeah? Well, this Gentile is going to make it time. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said that the, the violent take the kingdom of God by violence. It wasn't that the kingdom of God is taken by violence through actual violence like the crusades mistakenly understood, but it was that when you want it, you go and get it. That's the type of faith that Jesus is looking for. A faith that doesn't give up. A faith that persists. A faith that gets what he's doing, drawing out her faith and says, okay, I'll go with you there, Jesus. That's another facet of the type of faith that pleases Jesus. Luke 9, 62 uh, says that the kingdom of God is taken by violence in another way. Jesus says there, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You put your hand to the plow, you keep going. That's the type of persistence that's necessary for the Christian life. This woman was not going to take no for an answer. She was not going to give up. Don't you find in your life as a Christian, perhaps depending on how long you've lived as a Christian, that there are times when you're tempted to give up? Maybe not to abandon Jesus, but just to not take holiness so seriously not keep praying for the thing that you've been praying years about because you think it's not working. Don't you find that? In those moments, we must remember that persistence has to accompany saving faith. And I think one of the best ways, one of the most clear ways for the Christian for persistence to show itself is in our prayer lives, who, who among us here, having been a Christian for a while, has not prayed for at least months, if not years, for the salvation of a loved one? And yet if you've prayed that for years, then isn't it at least at some points tempting to think, I, I, I just don't see anything happening. Maybe God's not hearing my prayer. Maybe I need to stop praying the prayer. There's just not anything happening here. Who among us here has not dealt with a sin for a long period of time and continually pled with God, God, please, please change me. And yet you continue to wrestle. You see, persistence is a necessary facet of faith. I want you to see this with me. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the persistent widow. And thankfully, he gives us the whole purpose of the parable, or Luke gives us the whole purpose of the parable right at the very beginning in verse one. Luke chapter 18, verses one to eight. This is speaking of Jesus, it says, and he told them a parable to the effect that They ought always to pray and not lose heart. So why does he tell them this parable? So that you would never stop praying. That even if you don't get what you're asking for when you want it, you wouldn't lose heart and you would persist in asking. Verse 2 says, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, Do you believe what I just told you? That God will give you justice speedily. You see, the problem that we have is that we are confined to time. We mark everything by time, but God doesn't. Because although he exists within time, he also eternally exists outside of the bounds of time. And so we hear speedily, we hear Jesus say God will give you justice speedily and then you think about the times that you've been wronged and you think, yeah, but it's not true. Now, you're of course not gonna admit that during the meet and greet because people will think you're really ungodly then. (gasps) But you know you think it. And so Jesus is saying, do you believe what I've just told you? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Do you believe what I said to you? Do you have a faith that persists? And specifically, does it persist in prayer? It can be a hard pill to swallow, can't it? Yet this is a facet of the faith that Jesus loves, persistence. Let's turn back to Mark chapter seven then and continue to look at these facets of faith that, that Jesus loves. We've learned that he loves a faith that seeks him, that he loves a faith that is courageous, that he loves a faith that persists and that, that applies to us, most especially by continually walking with Jesus, even though, though you might not be feeling it, and continually seeking Him through prayer, even though you might not get it in the time frame that you want it. And now we see, number four, the fourth facet of faith, is that she exudes a humble faith, a humble faith. She's not offended by what Jesus says. This is another aspect of this interaction between the woman and Jesus. Now, Jesus said to her a story about a dog. And granted, there are two different words he could have used for a dog. One was the word that referred to a wild dog that ran the streets that was considered gross to everybody. You know, the the mangy, rabid, flea-ridden dog that no one wants to touch? We don't know anything about that because we're Americans. We carry our dogs in our purses. But in the Middle East, even still today, they don't do that. He could have used that word, but instead he used the word that referred to a type of dog that would sometimes be in someone's house, though usually not in a Jew's house because they were considered to be unclean. And so Jesus uses that type of word to refer to the dog. The woman just says, Whether you call me a rabid dog or a potty trained dog, I'll accept dog because what I need is what you have to offer, Jesus. You see the humility that is accompanying this woman? Most people, both in her day and today, would have said, How dare you call me a dog? I mean think think back to the last time if you can remember think back to the last time someone called you a name you didn't like how did you respond did you say thank you George Whitfield's one of my heroes in a lot of ways not every way but in a lot of ways when George Whitfield would receive and he re- he got a ton of criticism he would actually write a note back to the person thanking them for their criticism because it kept him humble. And then he would actually say, I'm afraid it's much worse than you think it is. (laughs) And he wasn't even, I mean, he wasn't kidding. He was dead serious. Do you know why? Because he knew that we're not dogs. We're sinners. And that's way worse than being a dog. This woman understood that a dog would be a compliment to a sinner. So I ask you, do you understand that? Do you understand that you're a sinner? It's much worse than you know. And do you understand that it's sinners whom Jesus died for? Jesus didn't die for dogs. He died for sinners. And if you are to come to Jesus, and if you are to continue to remain and abide in him, then you must have the humility that marks that understanding, that what you need from God is mercy, because what you deserve from God is wrath. See, the woman knows she comes to Jesus because she wants something from him, right? Right? Yet she knows she deserves absolutely nothing from him. And so when he talks about a dog in a parable, not to insult her, but it could have insulted her had she misunderstood. When he talks about a dog, she doesn't say, how dare you, and stomp away. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dog needs a crumb every now and then. As if to say, Jesus, I don't want to bother you. If you could just throw me a little crumb, that's all I need. That'll get me through. You see, the kind of faith that Jesus loves is a humble faith. A humble faith. Do you have that humble faith right now? Why should God accept you? If if? if you, your answer to that question immediately starts running through the list of things you've done for God, then I want to tell you, you don't understand. You don't understand. What should immediately come through your mind is all the things you've done to offend God. And then, and this is important, then, the cross of Jesus Christ upon which every single one of those offenses was completely paid for. And then the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ that shows that he is justifying all who believe in him. But if you come to God thinking, God, you really lucked out by getting me on your team. I mean, I'm like the number one draft pick here. This church would be lost without me, God. I mean, I keep this place running. If I didn't set that thing up, nobody else would do it. I'm pretty awesome, God. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I just wanted to stop by and tell you how awesome I am. It's funny, right? But do you know what, that, what is at the source of every battle in a church? A lack of humility. Pride. Ugly, sin-soaked, stinks like the breath of Satan. Pride. When we fail to humble ourselves and see ourselves as nothing more than sinners, worse than dogs, deserving the wrath of God, then we fail altogether. Do you know the thing about dogs? They've never sinned against God. You ever think about that? Dogs do what God made them to do, they give glory to God just by being a dog, mine especially. And yet, the mistake Uzzah made was thinking that the dirt was more holier than he was. Don't make that same mistake. Be humble. Never forget that all you are is a sinner who's been saved by grace. So she's not offended by what Jesus says. She uses what Jesus says. Humility must accompany our faith. And then the fifth facet of the kind of faith that Jesus loves is a genuine faith. A genuine faith. Notice verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Why did Jesus heal her daughter without even being there? For this statement, for what she said to him because what she said to him exuded genuine faith it exuded what the son of man had come to look for it exuded what the parables are designed to draw out of you genuine faith mark likes to show us rather than tell us matthew likes to tell us and so when matthew highlights this very same account matthew includes in matthew 15:28 then jesus answered her oh woman great Is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. Matthew tells us, Mark shows us, Mark says, this is what faith looks like. So her faith is genuine. She wanted something from Jesus. It's not wrong to want something from Jesus. But she wanted it from Jesus because she knew who Jesus was. What did she call him in this interaction? Lord. Lord. And in Matthew's account, not only does she call him Lord, but she calls him son of David. And she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Because she knows that's all the sinner can ask for from God. Mercy. Mercy. While the Pharisee stands and and lauds his accomplishments, the tax collector can't even look up to heaven, but beats his chest and says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. You see, genuine faith expresses itself in that very way. It's a true diagnosis of your own heart condition and a right realization of God's love for you in that condition. That God has condescended to you. God has took on flesh, that the very Holy One of God has entered into the unholy world of sinners so that he could save us. Consequently, that, that is what the church is all about. We're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. God's gifted us He's used us in various capacities, but we're nothing, really. We can't do anything without Jesus. And so this woman displays a true, genuine faith and Jesus sees right to her heart. For this statement, you can go home now. Your daughter's good. And then a a sixth and final facet of the kind of faith that Jesus loves is an obedient faith in obedient faith. Verse 30, she does what Jesus tells her to do. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. It's a simple statement really, right? She went home. Well, of course she went home. We might be tempted to think. But do you remember what happened when Jesus healed the man of leprosy and said, don't you tell anybody about what I've done? He went He disobeyed Jesus, and he told everybody about what Jesus did. This woman doesn't disobey Jesus. She believes him. She doesn't demand that he come home with her. Yeah, but Lord, I just need to see you do it to make sure it sticks. She turns and she goes home. I would guess, this is a guess, I would guess it was a dead sprint home. I gotta see my little girl because Jesus says she's free. So I believe him. It's an obedient faith. You see, that's what real faith is, isn't it? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We don't obey so that we earn love. We obey because Jesus has given love. 1 John 1, 5 to 6 says, this is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And yet First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all Unrighteousness. Have you done that? Seriously, have you done that? Have you confessed your sins to Jesus? He already knows it. As is evidenced by the fact that he's not repulsed by this woman that his disciples were repulsed by. He's not repulsed by you and your sin. No amount of uncleanness turns Jesus away. It's the sinner, the unclean person that he died for, the very one that he came for. Your sin is not so bad that it repels the Savior, but he's drawn to it. So have you confessed your sin to him? And then Christian Do you have an ongoing, continuing, daily practice of confessing your sin to Jesus? In all seriousness, when's the last time you said to Jesus, Jesus, I have sinned against you in this way. Please forgive me. Because if you haven't done that recently, you're not paying attention to your own heart. And if you haven't done that recently, then you're not enjoying the Savior's forgiveness like you could be. So we've seen this morning that the kind of faith that Jesus loves is a seeking faith, a courageous faith, a persistent faith, a humble faith, a genuine faith, and an obedient faith. So if you have the kind of faith that Jesus loves, then you must have a seeking faith, one that keeps on pursuing him. You must have a courageous faith, one that overcomes any obstacle in order to follow him, You must have a persistent faith, one that doesn't give up, but that endures to the end. You must have a humble faith, one that recognizes that you are a sinner, deserving nothing from God, but gaining everything from God through Christ. You must have a genuine faith, one that truly believes everything Jesus says. And you must have an obedient faith, one that does what Jesus says. Because he's your first love. While there are many things that capture our attention in this life, my friends, this is what captures Jesus' attention. Do you have it? As we think about faith and the nature of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us,